Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, everyone. When you think of hypnosis, you probably imagine a dangling watch, a stage performance, and a complete loss of control, and maybe some embarrassment. But according to Dr. David Spiegel, hypnosis is a powerful therapeutic tool that can help with anxiety, sleep, pain management, addiction, and more. David is a psychiatrist who has spent over 40 years studying hypnosis. He has written 13 books, 404 scientific journal articles, and 170 book chapters on hypnosis, psychosocial oncology, stress physiology, trauma, and psychotherapy. In today's episode, he's here to discuss the very real science behind hypnosis, how you can practice it on your own at home, and how it actually enhances control over your mind and body. David, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Glad to be here. It's an honor to have you. Uh, You are a powerhouse in the field of science, specifically in, in your field of hypnosis. Uh, and so let's start there. Can you talk a little bit about your background and, and, and what you do? Um, well, uh, Jason, I'm happy to be here with you. I'm, uh, Wilson professor and associate chair of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford university, where I've been on the faculty since 1975. Um, and, uh, I've been studying hypnosis, using it clinically, doing uh, randomized clinical trials, uh, doing brain imaging of what happens when people are hypnotized for my entire career. Um, and the way it began is that it's something of a genetic illness in my family since both of my parents were psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. And so they told me I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be. And here I am. Um, and actually, uh, you mentioned that you went to Columbia and that you had a terrible hypnosis stage show demonstration when you started. Yes. That rankles a little bit because my father taught a legendary course on hypnosis at Columbia. And uh, for years, I've heard people say how much they enjoyed his course, even if they didn't use hypnosis in their practice. And one day I met a guy who said, my biggest regret when I went to Columbia Medical School, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, is that I didn't take your father's course in hypnosis. You know, I wish I had. Um, he was uh, training as an analyst, and a Viennese refugee named Gustav von Aschaffenburg, uh, who was trying to help the American war effort against the Nazis because he'd been chased out of Europe by the Nazis, um, uh, had learned about hypnosis because he was a forensic psychiatrist. He had a smallpox scar in the middle of his forehead, 
And um, he noticed that some of the prisoners he was interviewing would suddenly just sort of turn their heads down and drift off, and he got interested in hypnosis. He taught my father and a number of other young army docs about how to use it to help with pain control and with combat stress reactions. And my father did that in, in North Africa in World War II. And when he came back, he was going back to being an analyst, and one of his supervisors said, don't give up on hypnosis. You know, you're going to teach a course on it, and I'm going to take it at the Psychoanalytic Institute, which was a re revolutionary thing since Freud gave up hypnosis early in his career. And uh, so the dinner table conversations were pretty interesting. And when I wound up going to medical school, I thought, well, I'd better take my own course on hypnosis. And my first patient, who I will never forget, was a the, the nurse, I was on pediatrics at Children's Hospital in Boston, and the, the nurse says, Spiegel, your next patient's in room 342. And uh, I was following the sound of her wheezing down the hall. She was an asthmatic who for three months in a row had been hospitalized in what we call status asthmaticus, where she was wheezing and we couldn't get her to stop. We gave her subcutaneous epinephrine, didn't work twice. And so I'm standing in the room, pretty 15-year-old girl, knuckles white, struggling for breath, mother standing next to me crying, nurse in the room, and I didn't know what to do. So I said, do you want to learn a breathing exercise? She nods. And uh, I get her hypnotized, and then I break into a sweat because I realized that we hadn't gotten to asthma in the course yet. So I said something very sophisticated. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. Talking about what you're for and not what you're against. And she, within five minutes, she's lying back in bed, and she isn't wheezing anymore. And Mother stops crying. Nurse runs out of the room. Intern comes looking for me. And I figure he's going to pat me on the back and say, what the hell did you do, Spiegel? And he said, the nurse has filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. Now, I spent seven years in Massachusetts in training. There are a lot of weird laws in Massachusetts, but that is not one of them. And, uh, and her mother was standing next to me while I did it. So he said, you're going to have to stop doing this. And I said, why? He said, it's dangerous. I said, well, you were, your next step was general anesthesia and steroids, and you're telling me that my talking to her is dangerous? I said, take me off the case if you want, but as long as she's my patient, I'm not going to tell her something I know isn't true. So he stomps out, and the intern, the resident, the chief resident, and the attending had a council of war over the weekend. And they came back on Monday with a radical idea. They said, let's ask the patient. Um, I don't think that had ever been tried before there. And she said, oh, I like this. Well, she had one subsequent hospitalization, but went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. And I figured that anything that could help a patient that much, that fast, frustrate the head nurse, violate a non-existent Massachusetts law had to be worth looking into. Um, and, and so I've been doing it ever since because, you know, it was the evidence of my eyes right there in the room. You could see the change happening. And, um, it, it really is a shame that um, we have consistently undervalued a technique that is the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's been around for 250 years. And we instead overvalue things like incision, ingestion, or injection, you know, the physical things, treating the body like it's a broken car, you know, replace the parts. And downplay the role of this three-pound organ that sits on the top of our bodies and regulates every part of the body, connected to every part of the body. Why should it not have an ability to 
to help the body recover from problems like asthma or prevent problems or control pain. It does. And in the United States, we kill 30,000 people a year with opioid overdoses. Um, and hypnosis hasn't killed a single person, and it's helped a whole lot of people do a whole lot of things. So um, I'm sorry you got started with uh, a stage show hypnosis, and I'm here to tell you there's a hell of a lot more to it than that. Yes, and just to fill in our audience, the, the conversation we had before we hit record, my experience, I think, is not uncommon. Uh, the, the first experience being my freshman orientation at Columbia, and they, they gathered the group of freshmen and fun activities. And then there was a little bit of a stage show where they pulled three people up and they were hypnotized. Next thing you know, they're all doing silly things. And then boom, they snap out of it. They have no idea what happened. Everyone laughs. And, and that was it. And then the other experience, anecdotally, I've had friends whose parents, and this is 20, 30 years ago, actually longer than that, probably uh, lifelong smokers and nothing worked. And then hypnosis did. And, and, I, and I don't think I'm alone. I think people view hypnosis as the stage show or addiction, but there's a lot more to it. And let, let's talk about one, I think your work is fascinating. Some, something that I did not know was, was even a use case is self-hypnosis. And can you talk about the, the differences between stage hypnosis and self-hypnosis and the use cases? I'm glad you raised that question, Jason, because the biggest fear people have is that they're losing control and they have this image of, you know, the dangling watch or in that weird movie, Get Out, you know, the therapist banging her spoon against the coffee cup. It is true that somebody can trigger you to narrowly focus your attention. Hypnosis is like looking through a telephoto lens in a camera. What you see, you see with great detail, but you're less aware of the content. Um, it allows you to change how you perceive yourself and what you're doing. That's got tremendous therapeutic potential, but it's fundamentally an intrinsic ability. People differ in their ability to experience hypnosis. And if you're not hypnotizable, nobody couldn't get you into a hypnotic state. And what the stage show guys do is they filter through the audience first to get the 15% who are extremely hypnotizable. They're the ones they keep on the stage and everybody else they has to sit down again. Um, and so they, they cover up the fact that what he's doing, what the, the, the stage show hypnotist is doing, is identifying people who have the ability and making them think that he can get them to do anything and making the audience think that. What he's doing is identifying a capacity people have to varying degrees and showing them one way to use it, but it's not a therapeutically useful way at all. It's a way that makes people look silly. The, the, however, there's something to unpack in that. And that is one of the things that happens in a hypnotic state, other than the high focusing of attention, is the capacity to try out being different, to put aside, sort of like what people do in meditation, get over yourself and try things being a different person. What would it be like in the sense of helping people to stop smoking if instead of focusing on my urge to smoke, uh, which is a bottomless pit, you know, you, the more you focus on it, the more you want it. You focus on respecting and protecting your body, on being your body's keeper, thinking of your body as if it were a baby. Would you ever put tar and nicotine-filled smoke into your baby's lungs? Would you put it into your dog's lungs? No way. So focus on what you're for, respecting and protecting your body. And when we do that on our Reverie app, one out of five people stop smoking. I wish it were more, but that's as good as you get with medication or better. 
I think that's, could we just pause on that one? I think that's just such an important point that transcends hypnosis, this idea of focusing on what you're for instead of what you're against. Right. Weight loss, smoking, athletic performance, you name it. Eat with respect for your body. Give your body the nourishment it needs um, and focus on feeding your body the way you would feed your baby. You choose very carefully when you do that. But everything, I think of the messages, the war on drugs. Right. Well, one of the sad jokes about the war on, and you're right, I mean, I don't know any wars that uh, that don't do a tremendous amount of damage, whatever else they accomplish. And fighting drugs is not the issue. The issue is teaching people to respect and protect their bodies, to care for their bodies the way they care for their car or their baby or their dog, um, and to focus on what you're for. The National Institute of Drug Abuse has done some remarkable research, funded research, showing that the interesting thing when you look at the the, in, the uh, dopamine-rich medial parts of the brain, which is the part of the reward center in the brain, that the thing that triggers the reward with drugs like opioids, it's not the taking the drug, it's the chase. The chase gives people more pleasure than the catch. And so you're trapped in this cycle where you get so excited by the chase that you're kind of not so interested or worried. And what people get some hooked is that the minute they get high on the drug, they're ready for the next chase. That's what they're doing. That's what keeps them uh, following after the drug and poisoning their body. Um, so you're absolutely right that the key, the key thing is not just hypnosis, but if you're focusing intently on what you're for, you'll wind up doing the right thing. And just to unpack a bit, what's going on in the brain? So this is like the broader definition of hypnosis because there's the stage hypnosis. This is someone who you're, you're working with, hopefully a professional, hopefully not on stage in front of an audience, uh, a la dog and pony show, hopefully in a practitioner's offices, officer, office, excuse me, or you're doing this on yourself. You can do it on yourself. All hypnosis is self-hypnosis. I've used hypnosis with some 7,000 people in my career. And I know that what I'm doing is identifying their ability to experience hypnosis, teaching them how to use it, and then it's up to them. They're, I'm enhancing their ability to control what they're doing and what's going on in their body. I'm not taking control, I'm teaching control. That's what we do with hypnosis. So what's going on in the brain that makes this such an effective practice? So we've been very interested in that, and we've done a good deal of research on it using functional magnetic resonance imaging and as well as EEGs. And we see three fundamental things happening in the brain. The first thing is that when people go into hypnosis, they turn down activity in what we call the salience network. It's a part of the brain. There's, a, there's something called the cingulate cortex right in the middle of the brain. It's like a C on its edges. And the front part is a kind of alarm system. It's a pattern matching system in the brain. So if you hear suddenly a loud noise, you suddenly think, uh-oh, I better see if there's something going on outside that's dangerous, and it disrupts your focus of attention. In hypnosis, you do the opposite. You say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume the world's okay for now. Nobody's trying to break into the house. I'm going to focus on what I want to focus on. And so you turn down activity in the part of the brain that could distract you. That allows you to intensify the focus of attention. It's like the feeling you have when you're watching a good movie or you're reading a good novel. Believed in imagination. You have those experiences, Jason, that you sometimes get so caught up that you're just not... That. So you're turning down activity in the salience network. The second thing that happens 
is you increase connectivity between the executive control network, the prefrontal cortex, and a, par- a little part of the brain right in the middle called the insula. It's Latin for island. It's a part of the brain that is a mind-body conduit. So it's a part of the brain where the brain can better control what's going on in the body, like the autonomic nervous system, and can be more aware of what's happening in the body. We call that interoception. Are you physically comfortable or uncomfortable? So you heighten connectivity to control and perceive what's going on in your body. And the third thing you do is you disconnect the executive control network from the back part of the cingulate cortex. We call that the default mode network. It's a part of the brain where when you're not doing anything much, you're reflecting on who you are, what kind of a person you are, what do people think about you. And that's a part of the brain where activity goes down also with mindfulness. Get over yourself. Don't think about who you are. And that's why the stage hypnotist can make fools of people. But there's a tremendous therapeutic opportunity there where you can try out being someone different. So when I say to you in hypnosis, for my body, smoking is a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. You can say, hey, what would I be like if I were treating my body as if it were my child and dependent on me for everything I put into it? How different would I be? So rather than forcing yourself to do it or deal with your urges, instead you say, I'm just going to shift gears and see what it would be like if I took a completely different stance in relationship to my own body and focus on what I'm for. So hypnosis is a state where you focus intently and you turn off the part of the brain that kind of keeps you stuck in the old ways you've been doing things and allows you to try out being someone different and see what happens. So what are some of the primary use cases? We obviously covered addiction, uh, smoking to some degree. What are some of the primary use use cases? Um, Focusing intently. So people who have trouble kind of focusing and planning on how they're going to get things done and what they're going to do who find themselves more worried in their focusing on the outcome than they are on the process. Uh, So I I talked with somebody yesterday who has a wonderful podcast who was saying, I'm having trouble just getting to where I want to uh, do the hardest part of my work, which is editing down the films once once we've recorded them. And I had him get himself prepared, feeling physically comfortable, taking a cold shower and waking up, and then seeing um, his, his work uh, on Adobe uh, film editor um, as a video game and just enjoying playing the game of moving the images around and reassembling them. And he could hardly wait to get started. And that's been the part of his work that he dreaded the most. So you focus on enjoying immersing yourself in the process rather than on doing something to get to an outcome. I worked with the Stanford swim t- women's swim team some years ago the, the swimmers, the coach noted, they're very good. They're terrific. Yes. Best in the country, world. You bet. That their, their times were better in practice than they were in meets. And he thought, well, that's weird. Normally you think, you know, you get yourself all revved up for a meet. And he realized, we realized that they were distracting themselves by worrying about what the woman in the next lane was doing. And, you know, swimming is not a contact sport. And so it really doesn't matter what the person in the next lane is doing. What matters is your relationship to your body. So I got them to practice in hypnosis, swimming their best race, um, and their their swim times went up. Their their, their times got better uh, uh, when they practiced, just 
communing with their own bodies rather than worrying about what was happening in the next light. So that sounds like visualization to me. It's the difference. It's, it's intense visualization and it's, it's mind-body visualization. You're not just picturing it, which is helpful and that's part of what we do in hypnosis, but it's also reconnecting with your body in a more intense way where you're experiencing it, you're not just visualizing it. So in other words, you're feeling, what does your hand feel like cupping the water? What do your eyes feel like in your goggles? Being in tune with your body and helping your body do its best. That's exactly right. And so athletic performance, what, what else? You mentioned opioids, sounds like pain management. Opioids, man pain management is tremendously important. Uh, pain management, because you know, um, uh, Jason, the strain in pain lies mainly in the brain. Um, Pain is composed of signals that come from the body where there may be tissue damage, uh, but it's also how the brain interprets it. And to give you a simple example, right now I see you're sitting down, you've probably got sensations in your bottom touching the chair, but hopefully you weren't even aware of that until I mentioned it. If I did, we could stop the interview right now. Um, and so the brain all the time is filtering some kinds of information in and most information out so you can do what you want to do. So it is entirely possible for people in hypnosis to reduce or even eliminate uh, pain. I had a, a woman who was seven months pregnant, had bad lower back pain. Um, they, because she was pregnant, they couldn't give her opioids, thank God. And, and they had implanted a nerve stimulator that wasn't working. The bigger the baby got, the more back pain she had. And I had her imagine doing the thing that actually gave her the most comfort during this terribly difficult pregnancy. Uh, which was taking a warm bath. So I said, yeah, I got her hypnotized. I said, you're in your bath. Let the, let the warmth of the bath filter the hurt out of the pain. Focus on that sense of floating lightness and warmth. And within a few minutes, her pain went from seven to eight out of 10 to three. And, and she opened her eyes and she looked angry. And I said, what's the matter? She said, why in the hell are you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? <laughs> And you know, it, 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 it makes me alternately sad and angry that people have so much capacity to manage their pain and discomfort that we don't utilize. And instead, we put them on these drugs. We get them hooked on these drugs that addict them and often kill them. It's just wrong. Why is that? I think, I think there's a clear understanding that we're, we're living in an opioid crisis. I don't know what the numbers are, but I think it's one of the leading killers in America. It's, it's horrifying for, for parents. 30,000 deaths a year from opioid overdoses in the United States. Wow. And you are highly credentialed. This is real science. Why aren't more institutions embracing hypnosis as a form of pain management? We've got a real crisis. Jason, this, uh, I, I, you know, I lose sleep about this. It's just, it's terrible. The, the problem is that people think that the only real treatments are physical ones, ingestion, injection, or incision, that you're not doing anything real if you're, if you're just talking to people or teaching them how to better manage their, their pain in their bodies. And that's just wrong. You know, the brain is the master regulator of the body. Uh, it, it's connected with every part of the body. It controls everything we do, you know, but it doesn't come with a user's manual. And so there are things our brain, just like your car can do things that you discover after owning it for three years, um, the brain is the same way. We can learn to use it far more effectively than we do. 
And so we've done randomized controlled trials showing that people undergoing surgical procedures that don't use general anesthesia can reduce their pain by 80% just learning self-hypnosis using fewer opioids and having fewer complications. Um, we published a, a randomized study with 241 people in the Lancet uh, in the year 2000 and showing these huge reductions in pain and complications and anxiety. And um, if that had been a drug and not hypnosis, every hospital in the country would be doing that now. But people just don't take it seriously. And that's why I built Reverie. I just thought, I'm going direct to consumer. I want people to have access to treatments that are wildly effective and underutilized. And I don't have, like pharma, you know, a, a bunch of, uh, you know, pretty uh, girls going out to doctor's offices and convincing them this drug is not really as addicting as we think it is. Um, and, and so it's not happening. And I want to make it happen. Well, Reverie is fantastic, and I want to come back to that specifically, specifically the self hypnosis piece. But but I, I want to call out you 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 mentioned you you lose sleep. A lot of people lose sleep. A lot of people are stressed. That's also a use case. It's another use case, absolutely insomnia, and it's our most popular one. Actually, people love uh, doing it. So we just get people. The way I handle trouble going to sleep, as well as stress and stress management, is start with your body and work up. And it sounds kind of paradoxical because I'm talking about using your brain to do it. But when you're having trouble getting to sleep, um, we usually do the wrong things right away. First of all, uh, you look at the clock and see how long it's been that you haven't gotten to sleep or what time it is when you woke up. And all you're doing is arousing yourself more. You're saying, oh, damn, what, what does it matter what time it is except to get you all riled up? And what happens is your body gets tense, your muscles get tight. Your heart rate and blood pressure go up, and you have more trouble sleeping. So instead, I have people focus on comforting their body as if it were a child. Um, imagine you're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. Um, we do something in addition called cyclic sign, where we have people inhale halfway, hold their breath, inhale fully, and slowly exhale through your mouth. And as you do that, you trigger the, the, the soothing parasympathetic autonomic system and help your body relax. So you get your body comfortable. And then if you're still having thoughts that arouse you or make you anxious, I've got a, five meetings tomorrow morning and you know I'm not going to get enough sleep, you just project them like you're watching a home movie out onto a, an imaginary screen, but detached from your body. So your body's floating and comfortable. And you may even think of something you can do to help with the problem. But you're experiencing your thinking as if it were just flowing through you, not something you need to act on. And that can help people get to sleep. So I've read about this idea of you removing yourself from your body, you know, watching yourself on film, take, taking a step back and kind of zeroing in on, on work, like zooming out, if you will, uh, in numerous places. And it's been years. I think I think I've read about it in one of Tony Robbins' books. I think I've seen some other books on visualization. Could you walk us through why this idea of kind of trying to get out of your body works? Well, often my body is glad to get rid of me, actually. So <laughs> um it it works because um there are multiple ways in which the brain and the body can connect to one another. And what happens with stress as well as with insomnia is you start this snowball effect 
uh, where you have an interaction with your body that makes things worse rather than better. So you worry about something. Either I can't get to sleep or my boss said something to me that really worries me. Uh, is he going to fire me or something? And your body gets this fight or flight reaction where it says, uh-oh, this is going to be trouble. So your muscles tense, you start to sweat, heart rate goes up. And then you notice that and you think, oh my God, this must be really bad because I feel so bad physically. And it gets worse, so you worry some more. And it's like a snowball effect. One feeds into the other. If instead you say, you know, there's one thing I can do about this problem, either not getting to sleep or the stressor, and that is I can make my body feel better, I'll do that first. So you say to your body, whatever is going on with my boss or getting to sleep, just imagine being in a place where your body feels most comfortable, like a warm bath or floating in the air or taking a swim in a mountain lake, whatever makes you feel good. And just affiliate with that feeling and say, I'll deal with that stressor in a minute. I'll get to sleep a little bit later. Focus on that. And that's an area where you actually have control. Regardless of how stressful things are, you can do that. So once you get that sense, you've already taken a step toward diffusing the stressor because it's not making your body feel so bad. And then you say, okay, I'm now in a better position to deal with the stressor. And it might be, if you're trying to get to sleep, picturing yourself cruising down a, a river on a raft trip or something like that, just allow, giving yourself thoughts or thinking about things that actually went well the day before. What did you do that helped somebody or made you feel good? And so your body is now soothed and your mind is, you're taking control of your mind and what your mind focuses on. And your body isn't distracting you, it's supporting you in doing that. So what do you recommend when anxiety strikes, because it always will, and for some people, I'd say all people at certain times, they can spiral. Is, is there a, I hate to say hack, but I'll say hack or a trick or a practice where if someone notices, okay, something's going, I'm starting to spiral, I can do something immediately to try to stop it? Yes. Well, the first step is to get your body comfortable, to take care of the physical part of the anxiety. Uh, and then um, think about a way of dealing with the problem. So I'll give you an example. We have a flying phobia app on, on Reverie. And what we tell people to do is get their bodies comfortable when they're worried about being in a, getting onto a plane or being on a plane. And then we give them three things to think about to help restructure their experience, the thing that's scaring them. And, and this is not an uncommon problem. It's like you know, 15 to 20% of people don't fly because they're that scared of it. And if you really want to have a sensible phobia, don't get in a car because it's a lot more dangerous than, than, than flying in an airplane. Um, but I tell them, focus on three things. So get in the body, get in the plane, buckle your seatbelt, and float with the plane. Think of yourself not as a container that's controlling you, but as a comfortable uh, uh, experience where you feel your body, the motions of the plane are things that you can just float with, float with the plane, enjoy it like you're taking a ride in an amusement park. The second thing is think of the plane as an extension of your body like a bicycle. If you want to get from one place to another faster than walking, you take a bike. And you the bike becomes an extension of your body that helps you do what you want to do. And the pilot of the plane is an extension of your mind. You're you're choosing an airline not for some, you know, uh, uh you know, back back bush airline, but a but a, an airline that actually trains its pilots and supervises them. The pilot is the extension of your brain to help you control the plane and get where you want to go. 
And you think also about the difference between a possibility and a probability. It's always possible the plane will crash. It's always possible um, there'll be another wildfire right around us. and It'll be horrible, but it's not probable. So the fact that you can, uh, you know, sharply picture a bad outcome doesn't mean it, that makes it more likely. So you give people things to re restructure their fears at the same time as you're helping them make their bodies more comfortable when you're in that situation. What about, I think this is a cousin of uh, flying phobia. Uh, I, I fall in this category. I don't love elevators. I get in them, but if it's too crowded, a little claustrophobic, I get out. Well, um, you know, that's fine. You're taking control of the situation in that way. Um, it can be very uncomfortable, but have you had similar experiences um, to being in an elevator that don't make you uncomfortable? If I'm solo in an elevator, I'm fine, or with my family, but I just, I generally don't like crowded spaces and like a crowded elevator, I usually just hopped out. Well, of course, you're taking control in a way that gives you some comfort. But if you think about it, if you think about all of your experiences, even uncomfortable ones in elevators, has anything bad actually happened? You know, has anybody deliberately bumped into you or made, done something? Well, I, I almost I almost got stuck. In, I was stuck in one for about a minute once, which uh, had a profound impact on me. Well, you know, but what you can do there, again, look up, close your eyes, um, imagine that you're somewhere else. Just say, okay, I don't like this. I'm going to wait till it's over. Um, and I'm going to imagine being in another space that where I felt more comfortable. That is, you can you don't have to intensify your perception of a space where there's no actual physical danger, where you're not going to have to physically protect yourself, uh, but it makes you uncomfortable. The problem is, you're fighting the discomfort. You're saying, oh my God, there's all these people around me. What's going to happen? How will I get out of here? But in, in a sense, if you just say, you know what, I'm going to give myself a break here and be somewhere in my imagination I'd rather be until this thing gets fixed. I'm going to segue to cold plunging because I, I think it's somewhat related in this idea of I'm going to get in this cold body of water, which makes me very uncomfortable but I'm going to, where my heart rate spikes, but I'm going to breathe through it and be okay. Is that in the same ballpark of what we're talking about here? Well, one of the things in the cold plunge experience, and I've done it, um, is the interesting thing is the transition time. So the toughest time, and often we find reasons to delay actually taking the plunge. You know, you're there, I'm going to do this, you know, and you, and, uh, but you think of a few other things you got to do first, you know. Um, but there's a very rapid transition where the the first part where you're changing from ambient temperature to the water is a shock and particularly around your chest you know you feel it a lot uh, but it doesn't last that long and you quickly habituate to the new environment and so if you think of it in terms of what i'm going to do is give my body this dunk you know hold my breath for a few seconds and then begin to accustom myself to the new environment and the cooler temperature and you know until it gets to the point you know a half an hour later where your body temperature is really plunging don't do a half hour too long no no it's too long right but think of it as getting yourself through the transition period and let your body accustom itself to the new environment and it'll do that you know it'll close down peripheral blood vessels to conserve body temperature in the core it'll do a lot of things like that so trust your body to uh, uh, quickly acclimate you 
to the new environment. And think of yourself as getting through a transition, not as having to suffer endless discomfort. To me, it's also this idea of you're, wa- you're, kn- you're knowingly walking in distress. Right. And, but you're, you're saying, I'm going to breathe myself through this. And comes back to what, what are you for versus what are you against? So like you, you, you are willingly walking into something that you know is going to be painful, but you're going to breathe. Does that make, in my view, makes one a little bit more resilient? Yes. You're, you're, you're saying, well, what's the reason that I'm doing this? Am I doing it because I'm masochistic? No, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it because. I either want to, you know, use it as a kind of alerting thing, the way Andrew Huberman does in the morning when he gets his day going, or is it um, that I just want to prove to myself that I can be resilient, that I can handle discomfort um, and and not shrink from it, so I'm less afraid of things that could go on in the world. Um, think about again what you're for. What's the reason you're doing it, and focus on it being as an experience that teaches you how to strengthen yourself and your control of your mind and body rather than just something that's making you suffer. And you know, th- this one, I've definitely done a 180 on, on cold. I hate cold plunges. My wife and I live in Miami. We've moved from New York. We don't like the cold. We don't ski. We don't like cold showers, none of it. And so for a while, and I believe in bring, doing things that bring you joy. So I was like, I'm not going to do this. And then there was a cold plunge that was you know, conveniently located in the gym I go to. And I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll try this a couple times, and, and I'm a couple weeks in, and now I can't get enough of it. I've done a 180. So that's interesting. So how did you do that? How did you transform yourself in that way? I just said I'm going to try it. Good. And you know, I watch my heart rate. I wear wear a whoop, so I would see it spike exactly what you said, and then about 45 seconds to a minute later, boom, came all the way down. I'd see how and I felt energetic. So I'll do it in the morning now, and I, I, I love it. But I said, you know, I'll, I'll try this for a couple of days, and if it, if it sticks, great. If it doesn't, no big deal, but I'm going to give it a whirl. And so other than just trying it, what was the aspect of it that you were for? So I, I think it's interesting because of the longevity benefits, uh, cellular resilience, testosterone, not a lot of studies there, but there's some interesting chatter about the benefits there. I'm 40, 48, I'm a man, so, you know, that's top of mind for me as I, as I age. Uh, and then that energy, clarity. There you go. So you found all these other goals and, and uh, reasons to put your body through this. And so you saw it not just as plunging into discomfort, but as a way of keeping young, strengthening your body, and feeling better about yourself because you're able to take on something that you previously avoided. But with that said, if I didn't like it, I still wouldn't. There are some things that there are a lot of great longevity benefits. Running, for example, I just don't like running. Last time I ran was the last college basketball game I played in 1998. <laughs> Done this show. If, if you see me running, call the police. I'm in trouble. <laughs> I love it. All these great benefits for running. I'm just not going to do it. Okay. Well, that's good. So, so you chose your poison, you know. There you go. So... You know, something you touched on earlier is this idea that some people are more hypnotizable than others. Can can you speak to that? I'm guessing kids are probably the the, the best here. That's exactly right. All eight-year-olds are in trances all the time. You know, you call your kid in for dinner. He doesn't hear you. He's out playing basketball or whatever. Um, and it's one of the joys of childhood, actually, is that work and play are all the same thing for them. It's a shame 
that we make them into little grown-ups in school because they just in, they love learning. They soak up information. They get engaged with everything in their world. That's a hypnotic-like state. If you want a, a person to learn a foreign language, get them doing it when they're seven years old. You know, because and they'll they'll come out of it fluently speaking the language with a better accent than you'll ever achieve. I discovered that with our kids when we did a sabbatical in Paris, and they wound up speaking better French than I do. Um, and so. It's a period of time uh, in life when you can get fully absorbed in whatever you're learning. As we age and we go through adolescence and you know, come are taught to value reason over experience and emotion, um, some people lose that hypnotic ability to some extent. So by the time you're 21, your degree of hypnotizability becomes as stable a trait as your IQ over a 25-year interval. We studied that at Stanford. The follow-up shows it's a very stable trait. And about two-thirds of the adult population are somewhat hypnotizable. About 15-20% are extremely hypnotizable. Um, so most, most adults are, to some degree, and enough to use it. Uh, and even, even people who aren't hypnotizable can learn this technique of focusing on what you're for. We had a woman on Reverie whose score was 2 out of 10 on the hypnotic induction profile, which you can take as part of Reverie. She stopped smoking. Uh, because she was focusing on this issue of focusing on what you're for. <laughs> we had another woman who was moderately hypnotizable, who didn't want to stop smoking. And and uh, she the first time she tried our exercise, she didn't like it that much. She went home, tried it again that night. She lit up a cigarette. She'd smoked for 25 years, had never even tried to stop. She looked at it, she said, who needs this? And she hasn't smoked a cigarette since. And she said, you know... Dr. Spiegel, this is some crazy-ass voodoo shit, and I mean that in a good way. On that note, it seems like people going through really rough treatment, so think of cancer, for example, someone going through the ringer with chemo and, and everything else, immune therapy, whatever whatever they're doing, it's, it's a haul not only physically but mentally. And we know that one's mindset plays a significant role in the outcome. Are you working in that capacity alongside people in treatment? Because in my view, that's probably invaluable for, for someone, you're helping someone uh, you know, fight through the pain, uh, maintain their will to live. That's difficult. It, it is difficult, but actually a big part of my research has involved weekly meetings with women with metastatic breast cancer, so women who are facing mortality. And when we started that uh, group therapy in the 70s, we were warned that we demoralized them because they'd see one another die. You know, the, at the time, the average two-year survival was 50%, and they would see one another die as though cancer patients don't immediately think that's what's going to kill them, although half of all people diagnosed with cancer will live to die of something else. Um, we help them face that, work it through, grieve losses when they happened, encourage one another, feel like experts in dealing with cancer. And we'd end each group meeting with a, with a self-hypnosis exercise. And we tended to do two things, summarize some major thing that they had learned in the group that week. And it might be if someone had died grieving a loss, but also thinking, what has she left with me that has enriched my life? But we also taught themselves hypnosis for pain control. Filter the hurt out of the pain. Imagine you're floating in a bath or, a, or an icy lake. Filter the hurt out of the pain. 
And we found in a randomized trial that if, over the course of a year, the women who were taught self-hypnosis um, actually had half the pain the control group did on the same in very low amounts of medication. Because when they would get a new pain in their chest, they wouldn't immediately leap to the idea that they had new metastases and the cancer was progressing. They'd say, oh, this is more of this discomfort and I can filter the dirt out of the pain. So they stopped fighting the pain or letting it be a trigger for their anxiety and instead saw it as an occasion, an opportunity for mastery. And they would learn to control the, the pain perception. You know, it seems to me that some of the best athletes in the world have this superpower where you know, there's an injury and it happens in the, the heat of the moment in the third quarter or the fourth quarter uh, I'm using basketball and they just fight through it and they're in a zone that after the game you find out, you know, they broke their foot like a devastating injury, but for somehow they just fought through it. They, they, they temporarily suspended time and space and pain. Yeah. Do athletes have, what are the, is, is it same protocols and practices or do you think some people are gifted here? Uh, there are, well, some more than others, but there are some major athletes who are, who've actually used hypnosis as, as part of their training. And you're absolutely right. That happens that there are, you know, football players who, you know, the coach sees that his ankle is swollen after he comes off the field and said, you know, you, you may have broken your ankle. Well, that, that can happen. Tiger Woods, used hypnosis to train to play golf. He had this glacial calm uh, in these very, you know, high stress moments and, you know, where even the slightest tremor physically can screw up your putt. And um, he was able to just keep his focus on his connection with his body and what he was for, what he needed to do. Um, Michael Jordan um, trained using hypnosis. And, uh, you know, other than the fact that he looked like a man twice the size and proportions of an ordinary mortal. Um, but he also had this incredible calm and ability in the face of, you know, you know, six foot six people, you know, trying to mess with him. He could just keep his focus on the shooting. Um, and he, he formally trained using hypnosis. So yes, I think people, there are some great athletes who, in addition to their physical skill, uh, have this mental control where they can just stay in that zone focus on what they're for and not let themselves get distracted by, um, uh, by the opposition. In fact, I, in our, in our reverie app, we teach athletes who are training to focus on your opponents, you know, the, the, the goalie or the defending player as your coach, they're teaching you what you need to learn to do to be better at this game. And so it's not just an annoyance, it's an opportunity to learn. So I want to bring it back to kids. Uh, I have two little girls, age six and, and four, and great ages. Yeah, they're they're, they're lovely, and they're also a handful. <laughs> yep, depending on the moment. Uh, how sh how should parents think about hypnosis with their children in terms of you know helping our kids be resilient, happy, strong kids? Well, you know. Uh, part of what you can do with hypnosis doesn't always have to be formal, but certainly, you know, if they have to get a shot or have some kind of medical procedure, you can comfort them through that. You know, I, there was one pediatrician I knew who, whose way of hypnotizing a kid was to say, now I'm going to give you this shot, but don't worry about that. He said, because you're going to tell me that your body is ready when I press the button. And then he presses their belly button and gets them to giggle with that. And meanwhile, he's also given them a shot. So he's get them to misdirect their attention 
to something else. When my, you know, getting these kids that age to sleep, they don't want to sleep. In fact, when they, when the more tired they are, the more agitated they get because they're fighting being sleepy and being tired. And so I would have my son uh, and daughter picture going down a river on a river raft and seeing the animals along the coast of the river and just letting them drift off to sleep. One night, one night I didn't do that enough. And my son came out looking for me, you know, at 8.30 or 9 when he should have been asleep for a while. And he said, Dad, I need a professional. <laughs> he said, you know. <laughs> so well, what about the specific example where I think every parent struggles with, you know, getting your kid to, you know, eat a piece of broccoli or, or in, our, in our household, you know, get our daughter to take her, uh, her gummy vitamin in the morning. Right, right. Well, I would say the way to do it is to kind of, gamify it, to, to redirect it in some way. And many patients, parents do this instinctively anyway. Uh, but just say, you know, uh, there's a hungry uh, little part of your body that can't wait until it gets to eat that gummy. And it'll feel so much better. And you can picture your stomach smiling or something like that. You know, something that makes it a kind of fun game uh, and gives them something that they, they want to do rather than something they're fighting you about. Because the minute it gets into that power struggle, you both lose. <laughs> yes. I lost this morning. I lost. <laughs> I got it. But just say, you know, that there there's a hungry little animal inside you that can't wait until it sees that gummy or something like that. And, and, and try and make it a game that they can enjoy rather than a fight. So it sounds like there are a ton of benefits, many use cases, and that I think a large, large portion of the population can benefit from hypnosis. Are, are there people who should not consider hypnosis? Well, um, you know, there are people, you know, for example, with serious mental disorders who are sort of paranoid and, and are afraid that anybody trying to do anything to them is, is literally trying to harm them. And so certainly if anybody is, you know, uh, sort of pathologically suspicious or defensive, don't, don't force it, don't push it. Um, and there are people who have serious other illnesses who are very depressed and maybe suicidal who need professional help. And that's the first thing. And hypnosis is not going to be the answer to that. So they need someone who will help protect them and keep them safe. But other than that, I'll, I'll tell you that I have been shocked and surprised at how little, uh, troubles we've had with people who have used reverie. And we've had many thousands of people using it. And the number of complications I've had has been like less than the number of fingers I have on my right hand. And we've dealt with those pretty easily. So uh, it's surprisingly safe. So let's talk about the app. It's fantastic, Reverie. So talk about where people can find it and, and the use cases and all the good stuff you have going on there. The Reverie app is available we, uh, on if, you're, if you have an iOS phone uh, from the App Store, Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I. No, e at the end. Um, it's at Google Play if you have an Android. Um, you can learn more about it and get to those points if you go to www.reverie.com. Um, and it, we've designed it. We have a wonderful design team who have made it very efficient and effective and enjoyable to use. And you can choose from a number of things, which includes testing your hypnotizability. It takes about five minutes, and you'll learn how hypnotizable you are and, therefore, what sort of mind style you have that can make the most use of what the apps teach you to do. Um, and then we have apps for getting to sleep, getting back to sleep. You know, I used to worry, I, we made it interactive. One of the cool things about the app is 
I'll stop periodically. You get to hear my mellifluous voice, and um, uh, the the app will stop. I'll say, "Is your hand floating in the air? Are you feeling like buoyant?" If you say yes, we go on to something else. If you say no, I help you with that part of it. And so periodically, uh, it's more interactive and like the experience of being in my office. I used to worry about whether it was almost as good. And we get we're finding, for example, we get about the same rate of smoking cessation from the app as we do when people see me. But then it occurred to me that one of the uses of the app is to help people get back to sleep um, uh, if they wake up during the night. And I'm thinking, you know, it's better because hopefully I'm not actually in your bedroom at three in the morning helping you get back to sleep, but you've got my voice on your smartphone. So it's there whenever and wherever uh, you need it. We do it for pain control and it's very helpful for people in controlling pain. So before you reach for some opioid or some other medication, do the self-hypnosis exercise as many times as you need to help you get control of the pain and maintain control. And it's better to do it before the pain gets really bad. Do it when it's just ramping up and you can usually uh, manage it well. Dealing with stress and anxiety and phobias, uh, driving phobias, airplane phobias. Um, we have it for stopping smoking, for dealing with the impulse to drink, for other kinds of drug uh, addiction problems that can help you handle it better. It's not a treatment, but it's a health and wellness uh, skill that we're teaching people to get to the point where they need help. You know, there are a quarter of the American population has an anxiety disorder. You know, about eight percent has has depression. There are huge amounts of phobias, and the majority of people with these kinds of problems never get to a mental health professional. And so, what we want to do is make it available to anybody who wants to try this out and see if it can help them. Uh, manage these problems like pain, stress, anxiety, uh, and habit problems. We get one out of five people to stop smoking. I wish it were more, but that's not bad. It's it's as good as other treatment approaches to to smoking control. Um, so um, we welcome people to come give Reverie a try uh, and and see how you feel. But we get a lot of people who say they it has helped them a great deal to live better. That's incredible. So I'm curious, you, you've, you've mentioned a number of success stories you, you've seen personally. Is there one that just clearly stands above the rest of all the people you've worked with over the decades? I, I had a uh, recently a woman who has metastatic breast cancer. You mentioned that, and she had bilateral mastectomy. She's having trouble healing from the surgery because there's still some uh to her in her chest and she said I'm so anxious and I have terrible pain and I don't know what to do and she was pretty hypnotizable she was 8 out of 10 and I got her hypnotized and she said she was talking about her anxiety she has a loving husband and a 24 year old son both of whom care about her but she's anxious because she feels like she's spoiling their lives and so her anxiety so the symptoms the pain made her feel worse and worse because she's not only felt bad for herself, but she felt bad for the effects on her family. And so I got her hypnotized and I said, picture where you'd like to be right now. So she put herself on a beach uh, on, a, on an island somewhere and the wind and the sun and all that. And she said, I feel better. That's nice to be there. And I said, I want you to invite your son and your husband to join you on the beach. And she said, okay, they're there now. I said, well, have them turn around and look at you. And now you look at them, and I want you to look in their eyes and tell me what you see. 
And she said, I see their love. I see that they really care about me and want to help me. And I said, do you see any frustration or anger that you're messing up their lives? She said, no, they just love me. And I said, well, I, your job is to recognize that and thank them for the help they're offering you and accept it. And she came out of the hypnosis a few minutes later and she said, you know, my pain is gone. Her pain was eight out of 10. She said, it's gone. And my anxiety is gone. I don't feel anxious anymore. Um, and she was making it harder for herself than she needed to because she was blaming herself for something A, she didn't control, and B, that wasn't a problem. Uh, but she was keeping herself at a distance from the love and support her, her family wanted to give her. Remarkable. Is there, for, for someone listening, who's thinking, I wonder how hypnotizable I am. I'm assuming there's a series of questions one could ask to kind of gauge. Yes. Um, now, we have the, uh, the full hypnotic induction profile that I use every with every one of my patients on the app. You can do it that way. But one question would be something like, are you the kind of person who gets so caught up in a good movie or reading a novel that you forget you're watching a movie and you enter the imagined world? And those kinds of people tend to be more hypnotizable than those who say, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Um is there anything we haven't touched on today that you'd like to touch on, or, or if not, any parting words of wisdom for the audience? Thank you. Well, I would just like to reinforce the idea that what we've been talking about, uh, Jason, is that hypnosis is in no way a loss of control. It's a way of enhancing your control over your mind and your body. So people who are afraid of it for fear of losing control, this is a great opportunity to enhance it to learn how to better manage your body, take better care of it, make better use of it, um, live more comfortably. Um, and if you're having a problem with pain or anxiety or habits, um, this is a way to approach it where very quickly you can see the extent to which you can make a difference. And the nice thing about reverie is you don't have to take my word for it. Just try it and see how you feel. And we find that Nine out of 10 people find that in the first session, their stress levels are lower, their pain levels are lower. One out of five people who use it stop smoking right away. So it's worth it. You know, the downside is nil and the upside is tremendous. Fantastic. David, thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. It's been a real pleasure.